0: So most people think they should be getting into bed at the same time every day. And the exact opposite is true. What you should be doing is getting up out of bed uh, in the morning at the same time every day with very little fluctuation, maybe an extra half hour on the weekends.
1: Hey, Hurdlers, Emily Avati here, bringing you another installment of Hurdle Moment from Hurdle. This week, I am chatting with Dr. Brittany Blair all about sleep. It's one of her specialties, sleep and sex, actually. But we're keeping things PG for Hurdle Moment. I brought, Dr. Blair, all of your top questions on sleep, and we wrap about everything from if there is an ideal time to get to bed at night to if it's problematic, if you're waking up in the middle of the night, what the crazy dreams you might be having right now really mean, and fun fact I learned today, some of your sleep habits are actually genetic, which is kind of crazy. And now I have my mom to thank, I think, for being an early morning person. Not going to make this intro super lengthy today, but I do want to say if you have yet to rate and review Hurdle in the iTunes store, now is the perfect time to do it. It takes just a few seconds. The link is in the description to this episode, and it would mean the world to me if you'll support what's happening here. As always, at Emily Abadi at Hurdle Podcast. And if you have a hurdle moment of your own to share or just want to say hi, always available for you over email. It's emily at hurdle.us. And with that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am chatting with Dr. Brittany Blair. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, also board certified in both sleep and sexual medicine. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. So I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to this conversation. I have been uh, hunting for the right sleep expert to chat with me for a while now. And you came highly recommended from my friends at Headspace. So thank you so much for making the time.
0: Yeah, I'm more than happy to. It's my favorite topic.
1: My favorite topic. So tell me a little bit of your backstory. I mean, it's so funny because when people come on the show, my my first question for them is usually, have you always had a vested interest in health and wellness? So when you were growing up, did you have, you know, any special interests in sleep and the mind?
0: Um, I've always been interested in the mind. So I knew from very early on that I wanted to become a psychologist, but I actually had no interest in sleep, um, other than you know, getting sleep myself. I always like to say my my two favorite favorite things, sleep and sex, I ended up specializing in both because I did not realize that people have such a problem in both areas. So during my very first year of grad school, I took a workshop on sexual health and learned that one in two women and one in three men have a sexual problem and also learned how effective the solutions were and decided, okay, this is going to be my life's work. And then in my third year of graduate school, I was kind of forced, you don't, you don't really choose your training in graduate school. I was forced to do a rotation in a sleep clinic. Um, and I was like, why? Why sleep? You, you know, how do you sleep? You just lay your head on the pillow and you fall asleep. Um, and realized how many people, you know, anywhere between 30 to 50% of people have trouble falling or staying asleep. Um, and then also learned about the the treatments for sleep and how effective they are. Started treating patients in that clinic, and I was just transfixed. I was immediately hooked. So I ended up doing um, a double uh, year long training. I did a one year long training in couples and sex therapy at UCLA. And then I did, did my postdoc at Stanford, uh, special. In behavioral sleep medicine, so I'm now spend about half my time doing sleep and half my time doing sexual health, and there's a lot of um, themes that kind of underlie both mechanisms, um, physiologically, psychologically, and actually interpersonally. So,
1: so interesting, so so interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll let you in on another secret. I filled in the hurdlers that I was going to be chatting with a sleep expert, and I don't know if I've ever had so many questions and thoughts, and and I want to know this tidbits pour in. So they are excited to hear from you. And I think first things first, I mean, we can both agree that right now with everything that's going on, it is a time in that our anxiety levels are up. We're feeling a little bit anxious. We're out of our normal routines, although by now maybe we have a new quote unquote normal routine. So why is it that these stressful times can contribute to wonkiness when it comes to our sleep patterns?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, Prior to the pandemic, we saw um, a prevalence of insomnia, which is a clinically significant diagnosis, right? This means that it consistently takes you difficult, uh, consistently takes a long time for you to fall asleep, you have difficulty falling asleep, or you wake up in the middle of the night, can't go back to sleep, or you wake up in those early morning hours and can't go back to sleep. All of those things are symptoms of insomnia. And roughly 30% of the population experienced these symptoms prior to the pandemic, during the pandemic, we saw those prevalence rates increase up to 70%. Um, so for all of us, we had some uh, some impact. I mean, the pandemic impacted all of us. And for many, many of us, it impacted our ability to sleep. Many reasons for that, right? Obviously, stress impacts our ability to sleep. An active mind is not conducive to sleep. An active or stressful or worried or stressed out or worried mind is not condu- conducive to healthy sleep. Um, and then also, a lot of our sleep schedules got Wacky, right? Because we didn't we didn't have a normal. We weren't getting up at our normal uh, on our normal time, normal routine. Kids weren't going to school, and so with an, with an irregular sleep schedule, um, the sleep was significantly impacted. And then pile on top of that, um, people being exposed to massive amounts of negative news and media, and tons of uncertainty about what's going to happen, what's happening now, what's going to happen, what is the future going to look like, um, which led to a lot of bizarre dreaming. You're getting less stimulus during the day because you're stuck in the house. Um, and what you are getting is, is just full of, of bad news or anxiety provoking news. And so people really notice an uptick in bizarre, uh, bizarre dreams or even
1: nightmares. Interesting. I'd love to dive into that bizarre dream tidbit because I think that's one of the questions that came in the most is why is it that my dreams are A, increasing and B, literally just totally wacky?
0: Yeah, it's, this. a lot of people are experiencing this. Um, So there are a couple of reasons. One is with an erratic sleep schedule, if you're sleep, if you're not falling asleep at the same time and getting up at the same time, the timing of your REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, which is when most of our dreaming occurs, is dysregulated. Uh, And so what happens is you will be waking up more frequently in the night. So you may remember your dreams more. Um, And also you're not getting as much, you normally... When we go out into the world every day, and we we have a barrage of different forms of stimuli, right, from like walking down the street or driving down the street, engaging with different people, um, when we're trapped in our house, the mind is actually trying to come up with stuff, um, to, to, um, to stimulate itself. Right. So part of the reason I think is lack of external stimuli in the environment because we're trapped inside or we're trapped inside. Um, and then also the, the elevated stress levels, the media that we're consuming, uh, is quite stressful. And the brain during dream sleep is trying to make sense of the external world around us in order to ensure survival, right? Sleep is actually a very primitive, um, primitive part of the brain regulates sleep. It's a very primal um, process. And so the the, the, sleep part, the sleep part of your brain doesn't really recognize that this is not a very well, and it has been for many people, a very real threat to your life, um, but doesn't recognize that this isn't a very real threat right now. That's something you need to do something about. Um, so right. during dreams, the brain is kind of digesting uh, what we feel is relevant information for our survival.
1: So if there is someone listening to this who is determined to try to get some of those old sleep good feelings back, is there anything that they can do to ease into a more restful and less maybe sometimes scary sleep pattern?
0: Yes, absolutely. And it's actually opposite of what most people think. So most people think they should be getting into bed at the same time every day. And the exact opposite is true. What you should be doing is getting up out of bed uh, in the morning at the same time every day with very little fluctuation, maybe an extra half hour on the weekends. By getting out of bed at the same time every day, your body is going to get sleepy at the same time every night. So the first tip would be get out of bed at the same time every day. It's incredible incredibly important is the single most important thing you can do for healthy sleep and healthy sleep, a good, strong, healthy sleep system is going to, um, result in a decrease in bizarre dreams, uh, if 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 not only because um, your sleep will be healthier, but because you'll be waking up less frequently in the night, you may still have dreams, especially until you can get outside and your brain can be have access to more, you know, different forms of stimulation, but getting not waking up in the middle of the night is going to help a ton and getting out of the same getting out of bed at the same time every day um, is the best thing you can do for kind of ensuring good quality sleep. And then the other thing in this, I know everybody has heard this, um, and I'll just iterate it here. Uh, but the other thing is, Really reducing screen time and what you're exposing yourself to in the evenings. I like to say all of us should be able to carve out nine to nine and a half hours a day. um, That in that nine into nine and a half hours, we are sleeping. Maybe we're having some form of sexual activity or relaxing activity, but we're not looking at media. We're not looking at social media. We're not consuming news. We're not looking at our screens. Uh, Maybe we're reading a good old-fashioned paper book um, or magazine. Uh, So carving out a nine and a half hour window every day where you can just either be sleeping or relaxing. The average adult needs seven to nine hours of sleep a night. So the odds that you need nine and a half hours of sleep are very low, but by carving out that time, You have maybe an hour to an hour and a half of just wind down time um, in the evenings when you can kind of prepare your brain and your body for healthy sleep.
1: And I think some of the things you just said will probably be applicable to this next question that came in, which is, are there any tips to falling asleep faster?
0: Right. And so the counterintuitive thing there is the best tip to falling asleep faster is to get out of bed at the same time in the morning, right? When people's sleep schedule fluctuates, it compromises their ability to fall asleep. And then also recognize that sleep, our brain is not like a flip switch, right? It's more like a volume knob or a dimmer switch. Um, and so it takes our brain a while to wind down into sleep and actually to wind up out of sleep. So most people in the morning, uh, you we call it sleep inertia for the first kind of 30 minutes to an hour in the morning are a little bit groggy. It takes them a, a while to wind up and be into complete alertness and being kind of their brain online and ready to go for the day. And the same thing is true in the evenings. And so uh, that can best be done by, again, you know, roughly hour to hour and a half prior to bed, really discontinuing any activity that is productive um, or is too activating. So you want to be doing things that are calming for the mind and relaxing for the body. And that 90 minutes before you'd like to find, before you'd like to be falling into sleep. The other thing that people underestimate is the impact of light. And so now we have all these small smart bulbs. So training your bulbs or setting your bulbs so that they actually get dim. So you're in a very dimly lit home uh, in those hours before bed can work wonders in terms of your brain producing its natural melatonin and you being able to fall asleep.
1: Right. So two follow-ups to that. The first one Mm -hmm. is we keep bringing up that there's an ideal, you know, kind of waking up at the same time every morning. One of the questions that came in my way was, is there an ideal time to go to bed at night?
0: No so the ideal time to go to bed is when you're feeling sleepy so what I would what I would recommend for people is carving out your whatever your sleep schedule is going to be and it, it, this is largely genetic obviously it's it's impacted by your the requirements of what you need to do during the day. But some of us are what we call neutral sleepers, meaning we get sleepy on average around 11 p.m. at night and we'll wake up around 7 a.m. Others of us are night owls, meaning we don't actually naturally get sleepy until much later, one, maybe even 2 a.m. We find our evening hours, the most um, productive time of our day, the most creative time of our day. And you don't want to talk to us in the morning, right? We're quite grouchy <laughs> in the morning and have a very difficult time waking up before 8 or 9 a.m. And then other people are morning larks or what we call advanced sleep phase, where they are not your party animals. These people are the folks that are really super duper sleepy by 9, 30, 10 10 p.m. and are bright eyed and bushy tailed by 5 a.m. That is me. Oh, yeah, you're a morning lark. Okay. And that t- that timing is genetic, actually. So one or both of your parents um, were morning larks. Um, and so the best quality sleep is actually sleeping consistently with your biological clock. Uh, so if you're a morning lark, you're going to get your best sleep if you go ahead and stay consistent with that morning lark schedule. Um, and the same thing with a someone who's a night owl. And so there's not a specific time at night that is ideal. Everybody should be sleeping by midnight. Um, it's much more about getting up in the morning um, at the same time, not a specific time, but at the same time for you, uh, whatever is the best time. And that'll lead you to feeling sleepy in the evening. And again, carving out that 90 minutes prior to your desired bedtime to really allow the mind to wind down and prepare for sleep.
1: Now you're saying that a lot of this has to do with genetics, but I think one of the most popular questions I get all year round is someone who watches on social media, they see that I am a morning person and they ask, "What? how can I also become a morning person? If someone is predisposed to being a night owl, is it possible for them to switch the patterns here?
0: It is, but it's extremely difficult. Um, it's kind of like saying, well, it's a little bit more difficult actually than, than getting your hair dyed. If you're a blonde and you really want to be a brunette, you could be a brunette, but you're going to have to be extremely consistent in the salon every seven weeks, right? Otherwise, your natural natural uh, hair color is going to come out. And the same thing with your chronotype or your biological clock. You could certainly train yourself to be a morning lark by setting your alarm, getting up early in the morning, exposing yourself to bright light first thing in the morning. Um, you can microdose melatonin, three different four hours in microdose, I mean, 300 micrograms, uh, three to four hours prior to your desired sleep time, make sure you have really dim light, relaxed setting and see if your body will fall asleep earlier. But in order to maintain that earlier schedule that is counter to your biology, you will have to be extremely consistent, because going on vacation, uh, taking time off work, anything that you do is going to gradually pull you back to your default, your biological default. So that's an important thing for people to keep in mind.
1: You said a really big buzzword here, melatonin. Now, I have dabbled with melatonin for years in and out Uh, at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. There was uh, a few different studies that I read talking about positive correlations right now in this time by taking melatonin and going to bed. So I thought to myself, why not? Let's do it. So, give me some insight onto melatonin. Firstly, what does it do by taking extra than the body is already producing? And secondly, is there such a thing as having too much or using it too regularly?
0: Yes. So, lots of lots of thoughts on this. First of all, there are, the studies that we have looking at melatonin and its efficacy on sleep onset suggest that it is a placebo effect. So, people who take a milligram, two milligram, three milligram of melatonin, they may very well perceive that they fall asleep more quickly um, or more readily, and that is due to placebo, not to any active agent in the melatonin. So that's one thing. Um, Secondly, melatonin is produced naturally by the brain. So anytime we have an endogenous production or natural production of something, putting a supplement in our body of the same thing can be problematic. It can affect our own natural melatonin production. And then thirdly, melatonin is not, supplements in the United States are not regulated. Uh, it's not a regulated industry. So, we have no way of knowing if what you're taking in that melatonin pill is a melatonin or if it is wheat or sand or dirt, for that matter, or hay. You know, there's just no way for us to know what's actually in that supplement, in that individual pill. And in studies that have been done looking at the contents of melatonin, within one bottle of melatonin, we have found there's 70% less than what's stated on the bottle and 400% more. And that's just in one bottle when looking at the actual, wow. um, yeah, what it actually contains. So with that said, there is some um, benefits to taking micro dose melatonin, which is 300 micrograms. You can't even find it in a normal drugstore. Um, so it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult to find 300 micrograms for jet lag and for sh- shifting your biological clock. So for example, if you're a morning lark, taking 300 micrograms in those early morning hours can help gradually over time, shift your biological clock later. If you're mm. a night owl taking melatonin three to four hours prior to your desired sleep time can shift your biological clock earlier if that makes sense so three to
1: four hours seems like a decent amount of lead time there
0: It is. So what it does is when you take a teeny, teeny dose of it, is it almost acts like an inoculation, right? It causes your body's natural melatonin production to ramp up. So it gets that little tiny hit of melatonin, and the body says, oh, whoa, it's time to start producing melatonin. And that's what makes you fall asleep earlier.
1: Interesting. And so there's a difference between uh, reaching for that hard-to-find microdose and taking what some of the more readily available amounts would be, say, from your local uh, drugstore.
0: Right. So most people will take one to three milligrams of melatonin at night when they want to fall asleep. And uh, and again, it can be quite effective for some people, but the effect is due to placebo, not due to the active agent. Melatonin can also create grogginess the next morning um, because what's happening is your body naturally produces melatonin, starts producing melatonin when it starts to get dark outside, right? The melatonin production goes up. When light hits the optic nerve, it, the melatonin production stops. It sends a message to the pineal gland to stop producing melatonin. So the body kind of naturally has an onset melatonin production and offset melatonin production so by giving you something synthetic you're screwing with messing with the timing of your body's natural melatonin so unless you're doing that very strategically it's not a good idea generally
1: and if there are individuals listening who are regularly taking melatonin but aren't experiencing some of the uh, negative effects or possible negative effects that you are talking about is there a reason for them to stop or what would you advise to them
0: I mean, I always advise that people sleep clean. In other words, not take anything for sleep if they can, if they can, um, if they're really not able to sleep or fe- believe that they're not able to sleep without it, then of the things that you take that impact sleep, uh, melatonin is certainly among the less harmful. Um, but, you know, sleep is a natural passive process, just like breathing. Um, and if we can get to the place where we can avoid taking stuff to actually impact the sleep, I think we're better off.
1: Got it. Okay. Shifting gears a little bit. We have a lot of different awesome, stellar athletes that listen to the show. And one of the questions that came in is Should I be increasing the amount of sleep that I am getting during a training cycle? So, someone who might be taking on a little bit more activity than usual.
0: Yes, absolutely. Actually, there was an interesting study done at Stanford with Stanford's basketball varsity basketball team. And what we did with them is we actually very, very, very gradually increased their total time. In bed, so that they were actually sleeping more. That was the only thing that changed about their training program. So, all of the other, tra- their diet, um, the um, drills they were doing, everything else stayed the same, except we slowly, over two weeks, increased their time in bed. And what we found is shooting accuracy and sprinting speed went up. So, any professional athlete knows that sleep is actually imperative to performance. Uh, so, if if one can, again, not giving yourself insomnia by getting into bed, not being able to sleep and trying to force sleep, but if you can very gradually increase your time in bed by 15-minute increments every few days, and that is increasing your total sleep time, that is one of the best things you can do to increase uh, athletic performance for sure and to enhance recovery, right? Deep sleep, one of the only things that we know really increases the amount of deep sleep naturally um, that, uh, that the brain gets is by training like intense exercise during the day, um, Um, And so the brain and the body need that deep sleep in order to repair, muscle repair, like all of the process the body goes through to repair um, and prepare for performance the next day.
1: Let's talk a little bit about that like kind of angry feeling you get when you cannot fall asleep and then it kind of starts building up in your mind and then you're frustrated and you're wondering if I have insomnia and it just spirals out of control. So for someone who feels like they experience that dreaded spiral uh, on the regular, so to speak, what kind of advice would you offer to them?
0: Yeah, well, the first thing I would say is, look, you're not alone. This is an experience many people, if not most people have had at least some point in their life, you know, stressed about a test the following day, um, or argument with a partner something that causes an increase in what we call hyperarousal, which makes the sleep. Um, more difficult. So the way I think about it is sleep is a passive process. The more we make it active, the less well things are going to go. Same with sex, actually. If I were to hold a gun to your head and tell you to clap your hands and stomp your feet, you could do it all day long. If I were to hold a gun to your head and tell you to fall asleep and or get an erection and or have an orgasm, it's never going to happen. These Sleep is a, a, is a passive process, right? Meaning the less attention that's placed on it, the more likely it is to happen. This is why lots of folks who suffer with chronic insomnia. will be sitting on the couch in front of the television and fall sound asleep and then they get up and go into bed and immediately their mind is active and they're not able to sleep right and that's because Mm. by getting up and walking into bed a a place where the sleep has been very painful and difficult all of a sudden the sleep becomes active they're oh my gosh i've got to fall asleep i'm not going to be able to function tomorrow i'm not getting to sleep it's taking me too long to fall asleep and now something that should be very passive has become active pressure has been put on the sleep performance pressure and it's not going to work it's never going to happen
1: Could be maddening. Please. I have been there. And I actually, personally, what I I did when I started to experience a string of these things was actually lean into the headspace sleep casts. And it was like, it worked, I think, maybe not on the first evening that this happened to me, but the second evening that this happened to me, it worked. And so then I had a positive association with like, oh, this is going to be my magic thing that I can do when I'm up in the night, my head is racing. And so I'll just ask Alexa, to play one of those sleep casts. And it was so, so helpful for me. And I didn't have to leave my bed and I was able to like get back to a calm place. And so, I mean, obviously not everyone's going to turn on Headspace and it's going to be the immediate fix. But for me, again, that positive association, it was like an easy thing that I could do. And I could slowly ease my way back into sleep.
0: That can be a great tip or technique. And I'll give you like the positive and negatives of that. So the reason that Headspace Sleepcast works, um, and I was involved in, in working on their sleep program. So um, I'm a huge huge fan of headspace. But the reason that that works is because it's focusing your mind. So a focused mind is a calm mind. And in order for sleep to happen, the mind has to be calm. If you think about it, our bodies are most vulnerable during sleep and sex. So if the mind is active in any way, things are not going to go well. So it's just kind of intuitive when you think about it. So if the mind is focused on a sleep cast on a story or what's going on inside of your body, then the mind is calm and sleep is likely to happen. The moment that the mind gets activated, sleep becomes more challenging. So the downside with headspace is if you then create an association between I have to have my sleep cast in order for me to sleep, it's going to backfire on you. Because again, mm. most sleep is naturally occurs when it's just when we're not thinking about it. There's no performance pressure. So anything external that you use, I'm not saying this head cast are bad or the sleep cast are bad. I'm just saying becoming dependent on anything external to your own mind eventually can become problematic.
1: So then another example of possibly a way that someone who wakes up in the middle of the night wants to go back to bed is having some trouble. What's another example or a tip that you would offer them to get back to sleep?
0: So, it, you know, I like to think of that uh, arousal or kind of the activation around sleep on a scale of zero to five. So zero being that that stage where, you know, right as you're drifting into sleep, your body's totally relaxed, your mind is calm, and you're kind of go over the waterfall into sleep. And five being a full-blown panic attack, right? So five, you're very activated. There's no way, you know, your mind is in a state of fight or flight. There's no way you're going to go to sleep. So if you're a two or three or under, right. So you're feeling fairly calm. You're certainly not activated or anxious in any way, but the sleep isn't really coming. You several things you can do one You certainly can use your head cast or your, your head, uh, head space. Um, you can also use internal ways of meditating or focusing the mind. So focusing on the breath, you can do a body scan where you're trying to focus all of your attention on your toes and kind of work your way upward for people who are more cerebral and less sensory, um, you can do something uh, like serial sevens where you start at 100 and count backward by seven, just enough concentration to focus the mind uh, that you know that will uh, help calm the mind and help the sleep come more readily so anything like that if you're feeling activated so let's say on that scale of zero to five you're more in that three range you're not panicking but you're definitely kind of feeling wide awake then there's no point in doing any of those things then what you want to do is sit up in bed and read something not on a digital device but read something only until the mind starts to calm again and you start to fill those heavy eyelids then you can put the reading material down lay back down in Sleep, see if sleep is ready to come back. If you're at a four or a five on that scale, get out of bed. There's just no point. You're activated. You might as well go take a shower, go turn something on TV. Um, you're really too activated. And you want to get out of bed just until you feel yourself calming and relaxed down to that three to two to three range. And then you can get back into bed and see if sleep wants to come. But the idea is you want to, with all of your effort, all your ability, not chase the sleep. You can chase
1: having a calm mind and a relaxed body and then allow the sleep to come to you. I love that tip. That's super, super helpful. Okay. So then as we wind down here, two more questions. First Mm -hmm. question. Talk to me about sleep temperature. Is there one ideal temperature or just like the time you go to bed, does that vary from person to person?
0: So your temperature fluctuates across the night depending on the sleep stage that you're in, but ideally you keep your sleep environment very cool. And by cool, I mean 63 to 65 degrees kind of cold. The cooler your sleep environment, the sleep context, the ambient temperature, the more quickly your body is going to go into deep sleep so you don't want your sleep sleep you don't want your room to be too warm um, if it's too warm your body is going to stay in light stage sleep so the cooler you know really around that 63 to 65 degrees
1: okay so that leads me in to the last question we're going to have here i'm running an air conditioner now at night i've got some definite white noise in the room is white noise a good thing to have in your environment when you're going to sleep and why is that
0: so if you think about, if, anytime you want to think about sleep, you can think about it how we're sleeping if we were in a cave, right? The ideal the ideal state or context for sleep is a cool, a very cold or cool, dark, quiet environment. So during light stage sleep, the brain is still processing external stimuli. So if you have noises in the environment that you can hear, during light stage sleep, your brain is going to be processing those noises, preventing you from falling into deep sleep. So white noise can be a great Hack to prevent you from hearing, especially most of us that are living in cities and out external noise, um, or you have maybe roommates or housemates. So white noise can be brilliant to help mask those environmental sounds or noises um, that will impact your body's ability to fall into deep sleep. So white noise can be a great tool. We don't recommend using white noise too close to the too close to the bed, and certainly not too close to a child's crib, as it can affect hearing. Um, so. But yes, generally having white noise is a a great thing because it masks environmental noises that could disrupt the sleep.
1: I do have one last question that popped into my sure. head as we were on, as you were talking about ideal sleep scenarios. I remember when sure. I was younger, I'm getting personal here, I used to have this dream about going to the department store and playing with like a certain set of dolls or something. And I would always want to have this same dream over and over. And so I would try to think about things before I went to bed that would make me have. This dream, and sometimes honestly, I felt like I was successful. So, if someone is having uh, or wants to have a specific dream, or like has had a series of, of of recurring dreams, is that because maybe their mind is back in the same place, time and time again?
0: Yes, it could be. So roughly 10 to 20% of people are what we call lucid dreamers, meaning they can actually control when and what they dream while they're dreaming it. Um, And they're aware that they're dreaming. So you can develop the skill for lucid dreaming. It's absolutely something you can practice. And what you just described is exactly the way what we recommend to people is right before you go to bed, try to bring to life as vividly as you can. I recommend people using their five senses, right? So if you're in the department store playing with toys or dolls, bringing to trying to bring to mind, what does it smell like in there? What do they feel like as you're touching them? How heavy are they? Is the fabric soft? Those kinds of things. What do you see in the environment? What do you hear? Really bringing to light that you're using your five senses as best you're able to try to bring that visual. Um, into your as, as much as you can into your mind, um, and then drifting off to sleep, kind of meditating on that visual. Um, and this is increases the odds that you can, um, you could lucid dream or decide what and when you're going to dream.
1: So you're saying that everyone listening to the podcast right now can think about being in Hawaii, and by some palm trees and smelling pina coladas, and maybe it'll work. And that's what we'll think about.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Try to bring that image to life. What does that sound feel like? What does that pina colada um, sand feel like the sound of the ocean, the pina colada on your tongue? Yes. Focus on that and see if you can't put yourself on the beach in Hawaii. That sounds like coming right now. (laughs) All right.
1: I'm going to hold you to that. Dr. Blair, thank you so much for your time today. The hurdlers want to keep up with you. They want to learn more from you. How can they find you online on social media? Give me all of the info.
0: Yeah, you can you can find me online. Um, My clinic is the clinic um, Or you can just Google Dr. Brittany Blair, B-R-I-T-N-E-Y-B-L-A-I-R and you will find
1: me. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. I am at Emily Abadi at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.